This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out WatchCityResearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your book editor and podcast host. I'm joined this week with the author of Improve Usability Testing with Task Cards chapter, Todd Zazelenchuk. Thanks for joining me, Todd. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Absolutely. I am currently the director of the product design team at Dealerware, which is a company based in Austin, Texas. There, I lead a mid-sized team of UX and content designers. And at the end of this year, 2021, it'll be two years for me at Dealerware and two years for me in Austin, Texas. Uh, prior, I was in Silicon Valley for just over 10 years doing a combination of, of UX research, and then I shifted into design. And I worked in a couple of places, consumer fintech at Intuit, and then I worked on enterprise software at a company called Plantronics. In the past few years, I've shifted more into design leadership with responsibilities for growing and helping design teams mature and excel. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that design leadership? What are some of your tasks when it comes to that? Yeah, well, so I've learned a lot in the last few years. Uh, of course, I learned a lot before with different people that that were teams that I was on and the leaders of those teams. But for for the last couple of years, things that I've been working on with my team, certainly hiring and growing a team. We didn't have a large team to begin with, and we've got eight designers now. Um, so I've learned a certain amount about that and and read a lot practiced a lot or implemented a lot of things that I've been reading from from different folks in the industry and and then trying to develop processes internally some best practices and things that are appropriate for a company our size to make sure that our design team is contributing at the level it needs to 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 help the organization gotcha thanks for that Mm -hmm. and tell us about your UX journey how did you discover UX and how did you wind up where you are today sure Well, I'm originally from Western Canada, where my professional career began in education. I taught at the middle school level for a few years before finding my way into UX through the path of instructional design. Uh, Mac computers were hugely popular in education, still are, but when they first came on the scene, they they were a big deal in education. And as a new teacher, I was enamored with the potential they had for delivering instruction and facilitating learning. So very quickly, I realized how many design decisions had to be made by someone to ensure that computer software was usable by others and that users' goals could be achieved. And in, in that case, it was, it was all about learning. You know, were people learning things that they set out to learn? Um, so at one point, I decided I needed to learn more about the whole discipline of design. And I enrolled in a PhD program at Indiana University, and I moved to the, the US, and I studied instructional design and human-computer interaction. And when I was going to school, uh, a combination of, of studying and, and working at the university's IT division, managing their usability lab, uh, helped me kind of decide to go down that path. It was, it was the dot-com days, and UX was just starting to gain momentum. It was still called user-centered design, really, at the time. We didn't really have this moniker of user experience just yet. 
And usability testing was one of the cornerstone activities that defined UX. And so much was being written and researched about the various methods and techniques that I, I really kind of uh, started out with that focus. Yep. Uh, instructional design, that's an interesting start. Uh, and then discovering UX from there or digging into UX more from there. Are there learnings from your instructional design days that you continue to employ today? Yeah, I was just talking to my team about that the other day, actually. Uh, there's there's a lot of principles and even laws that we talk about when it comes to user experience or human-computer interaction, things like Fitt's Law and Hicks Law and different things that we pick up, you know, in, right. the, in the materials we study in this field. And, and there are some things that I, I believe actually can be attributed back to um, the field of instructional design and instructional technology, things like progressive disclosure and, and certain things that, that are very related to uh, educational theory and, and behavioral psychology, the way we uh, perceive things, the way we learn things, that actually there are design principles, you know, that, that I think developed possibly in many ways in that field and that we have just simply adopted as user experience principles over time. Yep. Yep. It's always interesting to hear how many different fields uh, think about visual space perception and how we intake that information and process it so that we have good experiences. So from instructional design or industrial design. So yeah, thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Your, your chapter improve usability testing with task cards. Uh, this one's near and dear to my heart because I love task cards. Uh, can you please tell us about your chapter? Sure. It's, uh, it's an interesting topic and one that I, you know, I felt like it was, it was maybe the right size and scope for a, a short chapter in the 97 Things book. Um, based on my original foray into research in UX, this is something that I think I picked up a long time ago, and I honestly haven't had to apply it very much for a few years. But when I thought about the 97 Things book and submitting a chapter idea, this was one that I thought, well, it's very actionable. It's something that people, whether they're new to the field or perhaps they've been in the field for a while and they've simply you know, forgotten about certain things that they used to do. Uh, this is one of those things. So it's very simple, a bit of tactical advice. Um, and I think it holds value for anyone moderating a usability session with participants. So let me describe what the concept really is. Great. Task cards are exactly what they sound like. They're physical cards, like an index card, printed out and handed to participants. Now that's if you're doing an in-person session like we used to do you know, pre-COVID. Uh, but if you're conducting a remote study, it may be a card displayed on the screen or simply the written task posted in a text message or a chat window for the participant to view and read. In recent years, uh, remote tools that we have uh, in our industry now, they allow for unmoderated usability testing. And the concept of a task card is kind of the de facto method for delivering tasks since participants don't really engage with a facilitator or a researcher. So they simply view the tasks on the screen as they're doing or completing the study. And those systems do a nice job of, of making those tasks available to the participant throughout the activity. 
So how do they improve our usability studies? I listed three different ways in the chapter uh, that I felt task cards come into play. The first one is a benefit of imp immediately empowering the participant from being a passive to having an active role in the study. So when, you, when you're given a task card as a participant, you now have some time to read and process and reflect on what that task is asking you. If you need to reread it, you can do that on your own time. Uh, you can ask the researcher for any clarification and, and it kind of eliminates that anxiety uh, that goes along with being in this kind of foreign environment of a usability test. You feel like you're reassured that you won't have to remember a bunch of details as you go about trying to complete the given task. So that's, that's one of the benefits I think that's, that's really valuable. Um, from the participant standpoint, from the, the researcher standpoint, you know, you would never, I don't think we would ever dream of giving someone a task to perform where they had to remember a 16 digit credit card number, for instance. Um, you know, we, when we verbally deliver tasks, we're actually requiring people to, to remember some of the detail as they then think about completing that task. And that, that can sometimes lead to some problems with them completing the task. And now we're left to wonder, you know, was that because they had trouble with the design or was that because they couldn't remember the task? Right, right. And, and participants have enough on their minds when they are having this new experience as a usability participant that freeing up that short-term memory for actual task doing is, is the way to go. Exactly, absolutely. Um, so a second valuable attribute of task cards that I think of uh, is the opportunity for researchers to confirm the participants' understanding of the task. So once they've given the person that task and they've, they've had a chance to read it, uh, the thing that can be really effective is for the researcher to then ask the person to simply paraphrase it back and tell me, what is this task asking you to do? Mm -hmm. and, and by doing that, uh, the researcher can now increase their confidence that no matter what happens after that exchange, as the participant goes about trying to complete the task, at least we know that they did understand what was what they were being asked to do. Um, it's really a, a technique that's as, as old as teaching, really, you know, to ask someone to do something and then, you know, before they set out to do it, just asking like, you know, can you can you assure me that you understand what I'm asking you to do? Um, it's a really, it's a really critical part and it, it goes a long ways, I think, to increasing your confidence, um, in whatever you observe the participant doing and ultimately increasing the, the, the validity of your, your results at the end, because you know that it was a, it was a valid, you know, act on the part of the participant to, to do that work. Yeah. Any thoughts on correcting the participant on or, or leading them to the correct task if they do have the idea wrong without being too leading? Because that's that, that sounds like a trick. Yeah, I think I think it probably is. And this is one of those things where, you know, this Dan from the work you've done as a researcher over your career, uh, it's hard to it's hard to really um, define all the possible you know, paths that you might end up taking. You kind of have yeah. to be quick on your feet to, to react sometimes. But 
assuming that the person reads back a task to you and it's clear to you that they misinterpreted something and that they've got something else, you know, in mind. Um, I think it becomes a little bit of a conversation at that point, but it can be a really comfortable conversation, just kind of probing, asking, you know, sometimes you, you learn a lot as a researcher in that moment about the bigger picture. Like what, what is the context that this individual is bringing to the table in terms of their understanding of workflows or the context that, that this system is being used in that kind of thing. And so you can kind of have a pre find yourself having a pre conversation at that point that really gives you some additional insight that you might never have had, had Mm. you not, you know, used that task card as kind of the stimulus for it. Um, but I think, I think having them, uh, share what they interpret that task to be most times, if you've written a decent task and it's an authentic task for that type of user, they're probably going to understand it and you're going to be off and running. And then the few times that they maybe misinterpret it, uh, then you put in your, your skills, I think, as a researcher, facilitator to kind of probe and, and, and guide them uh, to where they need to be in order to proceed with the task. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what you said in there about not, o- not only... Uh, uh, giving them information to proceed with the task, but also using it as an opportunity to to get more information. So they didn't understand the task as we wrote it. Let's understand why there's going to be learnings there. So that's that's super interesting. Uh, The other thing I wanted to ask about is um, tactically doing this. Okay, so we're in person, we hand them cards, fine. Um, In our new remote world, we can put it on PowerPoint, but that may involve switching between, say, a browser and uh, PowerPoint, for example. Can you tell us a little bit about dealing with that? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question, a really functional question for people who want to give this a try. When I started doing this, I, I did it with actual cards in in-person studies back in the day. And then when I first started doing remote studies. It was pre-Zoom. It was pre-COVID. It was, you know, it was more than 10 years ago um, at Intuit. We were, we were using tools like WebEx and just basic video conferencing. Um, and I did actually use PowerPoint as an example. I would be sharing my screen. I would have tasks uh, written out on slides and and if I was sharing my screen, having a user on the other end kind of walk through uh, a screen that I was controlling, then I would simply go back and forth to a task and then to, you know, to the system. If they needed to see the task again, I would, I would flip back to it. So it was kind of a little clunky, but it worked. And, and now today, uh, I saw one of our researchers on our team do a nice job of this recently in in a video conference using a tool like Zoom, uh, where you have a chat window, she was just placing the task inside the chat window and and referring the participant to that task. And then they would proceed, that, that task stayed visible for them. And then when it, they were ready to move on to the next one, she just put the next task in the chat window and it worked really nicely. That's awesome. 
um, it's funny as you were describing that of like your what you described as a clunky way of doing it. I'm like, well, that, that that's how I do it. Is what's he gonna say? And and uh, that's a wonderful idea of just putting the the task in the chat window. That's so that's so simple. Thank you for that. Yeah. What else about uh, the task cards? What else were you hoping to convey here? Yeah, I've got a couple of things. I think there's there's one third benefit just to add to the first two. I think the third benefit that I outlined in the chapter is just the role that task cards can play in mitigating any unconscious bias or inconsistency that creeps into a researcher's performance over the course mm. of multiple participants in a study. Um, you you can relate to this, I'm sure, Dan, you've done more testing than, than I've done in my career. Even when you have a study protocol written out in advance, it can be difficult to deliver all those details in exactly the same way throughout the course of a study. And sometimes we do studies that have multiple participants in them. And by the time you're getting toward the end of that, it's every session is, is the first session for a participant, but it might be your 10th session. And I found myself, you know, you almost, you start to get comfortable with the material. You start to ad lib just a little bit. And before you know it, you're delivering things a little differently to the 10th person than you did to the first person. And so I think task cards quite simply help you eliminate that inconsistency by ensuring that you deliver the same words, the same details in the same way to each person. Yeah, I think that's fantastic and so true, uh, especially because we want to keep that consistency. And especially if you are the solo researcher, uh, where we want to have session one be the same as session 10, and you, you do lose your mind a little bit on session 10 and, and uh, ad lib a lot. And that's why I'm an advocate for the study guide as well, in terms of writing the questions down and making yourself not ad lib and just read no matter how much experience you have um it's so important to read that so that you have uh and read it naturally so it's a conversation of course so but th so that you have uh, a consistent uh, experience for all the participants mm -hmm. absolutely yeah study guides are are critical and any any researcher i've ever worked with or or had on a team you know uh the, the best ones always make really good use of, of those. Mm -hmm. uh, have you run into any challenges uh, that either task cards solved or any challenges in terms of using task cards during studies? Well, it's a great question. The, because I haven't been conducting sessions that much myself for a little while, it's, I'm going to have to draw on memories of, you know, what, what I experienced in the past. I think the one that we spoke about a few minutes ago, where if you are uh, sharing your system that you're testing with someone remotely, and uh, depending on the tools you're using, the way you're, the way you're running that particular test, simply putting that task card, uh, displaying it to them in a way that that is accessible throughout the task. Um, is can be a challenge a little bit. You know, we mentioned PowerPoint, we mentioned maybe putting it onto a web page that they can have in another browser and they can just go between tabs. There's a lot of different things you can dream up. You know, it could be in an email, uh, it could be in a, a document that you send them. So there's, there's no real shortage of possible ways to share it, but 
any time that you make your choice and which one you're going to do, you have to think about how much is that detracting from, you know, the flow of them completing a task if they're having yep. to switch systems and things like that. For some people, uh, certain personas that you might be working with, it probably doesn't phase them at all because they're used to the systems and, and they can do it without issue. But then for other users, maybe in a, a more novice uh a novice capacity with technologies and things it doesn't take much to have them kind of get thrown off the beaten path uh, absolutely to go down yeah what we assume to be easy as technologically adept people um it may not be easy for other folks and i've definitely run into that where people cannot switch between powerpoint and chrome for example that that takes some doing Correct. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you've probably seen it all, but yeah, people having to make those, those mental shifts, they're so focused on what you're asking, you know, asking them to do. And they, no matter how hard we try, they want to please. And, right. uh, and so, um, you really do have to be cognizant of, of, you know, how to, how to minimize any kind of uh, speed bumps or, or hurdles that we're sort of introducing into the situation artificially. Yeah. And, and I think there are new opportunities these days with some of the newer tools we have. So if we're building prototypes in Figma or in Vision, for example, we may even be able to design it such that you put the task at the top or something like that, some sort of nifty way that is beyond me in, in Figma, but uh, we may be able to, to leverage those tools like that too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the tools that we have at our disposal today, like I just continue to be amazed at how far along we've come in during my UX career from where, where I started with the tools we had available to where we are now. And, you know, it's going to be another shift again, uh, in, in just the next few years, I'm sure. So it's really encouraging to see just how much we have at our disposal, um, some of the innovation that's out there with the companies that are producing these tools. Yeah, we're very lucky to have um, people making these tools for us and recognizing that there is a market for us UXers doing this. Yeah, I well, I've said it uh, in conversations with friends where, you know, here we are well into COVID, we don't, we still don't know what's, what's ahead of us necessarily as we approach the end of 2021 here. But I've mentioned a few times, like imagine that COVID had happened in 2005 or 1999, you know, and, and like, we all feel really good about how we've all adjusted and haven't skipped a beat, all these different things that we're really proud of. But we've only managed to do that thanks to some of these technologies we have. If we yep. were 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, we would have come to a screeching halt in some cases, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are lucky in that way. We set up for success. Absolutely. So in our final moments here, we love getting career tips. Can you tell us a career tip that you may have for either someone entering the UX field or someone who does have some experience? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to veer away from the research side of things that my chapter was focused on and just give a, a bit of advice, I think, to people new in the field, but maybe to all of us in the field, just how important it is to for, for people in UX um, to learn how to give and take feedback uh, and, and to do that as much as you can. 
throughout your career. There's, there's no better way, no faster way to improve your craft than collecting, seeking out and, and collecting constructive feedback as you go from your, your partners, your teammates, your colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think UX design in particular is a field where, where that feedback loop is central to the role. Um, we get, you know, we get asked or we ask people for feedback on, on our designs as a routine thing. Um, we ask for feedback on our design process. Um, once you find yourself in a design leadership role, you are now asking for and, and getting asked for feedback on career paths and how to navigate relationships. It's, it really does permeate everything, I feel. Absolutely. And, and getting that feedback is, is, is self-iteration. You know, we love doing iteration in design, and that's, that's how you can do it for yourself and for your career. It's just a matter of being comfortable getting that critique uh, can be sometimes that first hurdle uh, and being open with your own uh, and, and being productive about it. But to your point, it's, it's, it's how we make a great, great career and how we become better uh, uh, producers of, of UX. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, you know, everybody's different. Everybody um, wants, at the end of the day, they want to get feedback. And, and we all feel better, you know, about ourselves when there's some positive feedback in there. Uh, we all say we want to have critical feedback and we want to improve. And we all, you know, cringe a little bit when we get it. Um, but I think getting comfortable with that, because it's, it's almost impossible to to do the role in UX, whether you're a researcher or a designer, um, it's almost impossible to perform in that role um, without getting comfortable with the whole feedback yep. process. Yeah, uh, and and often enough, the only way to get that done is to institutionalize the process. Uh, I found that ad hoc critique or that or you know. It works to a point, but when you say, all right, the last 15 minutes of our weekly staff meeting are going to be critique time and, you know, bring us five minutes of your moderation or bring a design and it's critique time and making that part of the culture, I think is the real key to that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's there's so many opportunities we have. There's so many opportunities uh, design leaders and managers have to to model it and to implement opportunities for it to happen on teams. Design critiques you mentioned, Dan, are, are a great example. Um, those, are, those are perfect opportunities for both asking for feedback and then practicing giving feedback because giving feedback is not always the easiest thing to, to, you know, that everybody naturally knows how to do. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a full team effort in terms of individuals embracing that that skill and um, and then managers or team leads demonstrating it, modeling it, reinforcing it, and to your point, coming up with a consistent or institutionalized way of of just making it part of the culture. Yeah, yeah, great point. Thank you for bringing that up. So we're just about out of time here. Uh, my guest today has been Todd Zazelenchuk, who wrote the chapter "Improve Usability Testing with Task Cards." Thanks for joining me today, Todd. Thanks, Dan. This was fun. Uh, it has indeed. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the 97 UX Things podcast. Thanks for listening.
The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.